Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's ask God to help our hearts. Even now, Lord God, give to us, give to us simplicity of heart to receive your word. Give to us, even now, Lord, integrity of heart to declare your word, zeal of heart to defend the truth of your word. And Lord, hasten that blessed hour to us to all of your redeemed when our faith shall be sight. And in the meantime, Lord, in this hour, by your grace, keep alive in our hearts the remembrance of your love and the expectation of your coming. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen. We're gonna read together from James chapter two, verses one down through verse 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 down through verse 13. And the one thing that I want to point out before we read it is the very beginning of verse 8. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law, the law of love, if you really fulfill, we all know what that means. Because we've all been in a situation with a loved one where we ask them to do something. Maybe it was your kids. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was a friend. And we've said, maybe it's something as simple as, could you put away the laundry? Could you make the bed? And we've all known, when we've asked the kids, could you make the bed? They pick up the blanket and throw it in the general direction of the bed, and that's it. They did what we asked, but they didn't really fulfill what we asked. My kids always used to do that, and I really couldn't throw a stone because that's how I make the bed to this day. (laughs) But it's comforting to me that here in the middle of the Bible, the Holy Spirit says, if you really fulfill what this Bible is saying that you should do, What if it's something far more significant than making the bed? What if you have to ask your spouse the way I asked my wife recently, would you please forgive me? What if you ask somebody who you love, who you want to hold on to, would you really listen to me? And what if they listened, but in a bad attitude, not really into it. I'm just doing this under duress kind of way. Maybe they're doing an act of listening, but they're not really fulfilling your request to be listened to. It's touching to me that the Holy Spirit puts that here in this text. So James 2 says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brother, 
sinners. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we look carefully at this passage together, we will uncover four surprising insights into maybe simple biblical commands that we thought we had. We thought we had them down, but we can see what it would really mean to reckon with them and fulfill them. The outline, we covered verses one through seven last week. The outline of that text is pretty simple. You have the command in verse one, don't show partiality. And then you have a specific example of the command in verses 2, 3, and 4. Don't treat a poor man different than a rich man or a rich man different than a poor man. So from the command to the example, and then we have three reasons why partiality is evil. The first reason in verses 5 and 6 is because it goes against God's own attitude and action. The second reason in verse 7 is that it, it is a foolish attitude that is inconsistent with even what's happening in society and in the courts about the rich and the poor. Those are the verses that we covered last time. But there's a third reason why partiality is evil. And that reason is given in verses 8 through 13. And the third reason that partiality is evil is because it goes against the royal law of love. It goes against the royal law of love. Verses 8 and 9 are saying partiality is sinful because it violates the law of love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then verses 10 and 11, verses 8 and 9 say partiality is evil because it violates the law of love. Verses 10 and 11 say to violate the law of love is to pretty much violate the whole law. Guilty of one, guilty of all. And then discussions wrapped up in 12 and 13 by saying it's important that you love your neighbor and it's important that you don't show partiality because you yourselves will be evaluated or judged by this law of love. If you want to know, hey, what, if you're pushing me in a certain direction based on this sermon, what is the direction that you're pushing me in? I'll tell you right up front. Here it is in, in kind of three verses. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What I, what I want to push on you this morning is this. Wake up and live like you are going to be judged by God himself. Wake up and live like you are going to be personally evaluated by God. 
Verse eight, the royal law of scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to really summarize how you're going to be evaluated, couldn't do any better than this. Love your neighbor as yourself. As far as your behavior, worship, love God, but all ethical behavior is predicated on this. The, the one thing that God will look at is have you loved your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, show no partiality. Verse 1 says, show no partiality. Verse 9 says, don't show partiality. Therefore, showing partiality or prejudice toward people is to, is to break the law of love and is to place yourself under the danger of judgment. That's essentially what he's saying. But in verses 8 through 13, we can sort of get these four sort of questions where we can really uncover what it means to evaluate and to understand these four areas. Question number one, what is partiality? And how do I know if I have it? What is partiality and how do I know if I have it? What do you reckon is the number one Google search right now? What is COVID and how do I know if I have it? Even before COVID, there are certain of you who are always worried that you're getting something and you're always Googling like, my mouth is dry and my toenails are growing funny. What does this mean about cancer? Like, you're just looking to see what, what is this and, and how do I know if I have it? Like you're giving yourself more reasons to freak out. What is partiality and how do I know if I've committed it? Partiality is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew idiom receiving the face or making judgments based on externals. In the text, it says rich or poor, if their clothes are nice or if their clothes are filthy and, and raggedy. But we can expand that to based on their ethnicity, their skin color or their uh, accent or if they have a tattoo or if they're attractive or if they are socially awkward. What partiality is, is simply making a judgment and treating people differently based on external factors. And it says, don't do that. Love everybody. If that's what partiality is, how important is it to stop being partial? How important is it to avoid partiality? And this is where verses 8 through 13 really bring the hammer down. Essentially, he's saying you agree with me that favoritism and prejudice and partiality is bad. But you probably don't think it's one of the big baddies like adultery or murder. But it is. Because to be partial is to reject the essence. To be prejudiced is to reject the essence of the royal law of love. And that's what he's getting at here. As we grapple with this text, and he pushes us to give money to the poor and to be generous toward the poor, and James is going to also say that in verses 3 and 4 and 5, these issues of poverty and generosity keep coming up. The New Testament background to this, as explained by commentator uh, Douglas Moo, it, it comes off like this. The, at the time that James wrote there was a strongly marked socioeconomic distinction between a relatively small group of landowners who were wealthy 
and they were accumulating more and more wealth. And then a very large group of agricultural laborers who labored on land that belonged to someone else. Most of James' readers belonged to that class of agricultural laborers who labored on land that belonged to somebody else. But a few of James' readers and some church members were in the wealthy category where they owned the land. James clearly condemns. This is, I just want to take a second and clarify this. James does not clearly condemn being rich or owning land. He condemns wealthy people for being unjust and oppressive with their possessions. It doesn't map out exactly on our day and age, but I think it is important to talk about this because I don't, I can't open up a newspaper, which I don't actually hold the paper, you know what I mean, on my phone, or, or, or look at a news story without something about capitalism, socialism, even Marxism, so much confusion about economics, wealth, capitalism, socialism, redistribution of money through government, uh, control or whatever. These things don't map exactly onto our day and age, but I think it's worth taking a, just a thumbnail sketch of what is the Bible saying about if I have money, you know, am I obligated to share that? Well, how does that work? James here is talking about what Christians should do with their money. James is not writing a thesis on national economic systems. But the biblical picture, just a thumbnail here to take two minutes, the biblical picture from the Ten Commandments itself and the law against theft supports, presupposes even, private property and an economy where the laborer is worthy of his wages and the fruits of his wages are his. The Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, indicates that different laborers make different wages. In other words, all wages are not the same. Different laborers make different amounts based on the laborer's knowledge and skill and work and other circumstances. It's fairly clear that the Bible's not advocating a a form of Marxism or socialism. I'm not an expert on these things, but I read scripture carefully and I've read a fair amount of history. My reading of history is a long way from inerrant. But it certainly seems to me that the Bible does not indicate that laboring with a motive of profit is necessarily evil. That can be a good thing and that hunger can drive you to work harder. The Bible indicates that the laborer is worthy of his wages and the harder he works, the more he should be rewarded. The Bible also does not indicate that an impulse toward having the government control everything and distribute everything equally is good or righteous. Maybe we can talk more about that later because it's going to come up in almost every chapter of James. Get this, church. What James is saying here about partiality is if you see someone who has less than you do, you are evil and have evil motives. If you are greedy, 
and closed-hearted toward them. That's what this is saying. Don't be unwilling to share with others in the name of Jesus. That's what he's saying here, and, and that's close to what he's saying in the other references to it as well, but maybe more about that later. The second question, if the first question was, what is it? If the first question was, what is partiality and how do I know if I have it? And he answers it economically here. The second question is, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? I'm not very good at loving my neighbor. My guess is that you aren't either. I'm so not good at loving my neighbor that maybe you've seen this as a meme or as a t-shirt. Everybody in my family would buy me this t-shirt. It says, before my morning coffee, I hate almost everyone. And after my morning coffee, I feel a little bit better about hating almost everyone. That's my life. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? James says in verses eight and nine, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. There's a clear contrast here or, or a clear combination here of following the royal law of love and doing well. But then he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. So if you don't love your rich and poor neighbor equally, if you're partial and that you love some neighbors and not others, you're sinning. That's what he's saying here. Why is it called the royal law of love? Because at least six times in the Gospels, the, this law, love your neighbor as yourself, is quoted as the summary of the law. And then at least twice in the epistles, both in Romans 13 and in Galatians 5, the apostle takes this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, and he says that indicates the whole table of social ethical dimensions of, of the Old Testament law. James is making a very direct straight line between loving your neighbor as yourself and welcoming every poor person and loving every neighbor, whether they're rich or poor or like me or unlike me or whatever it is. Partiality that says, I'll only do for my neighbor what's good if I really like my neighbor or my neighbor presents himself or herself to me in a way that I find attractive. That's not Christian love. To have, if I'm a Christian, to have me love you, if I'm a Christian, to have me love you requires that you are you and you are in front of me. That's the only requirement. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be this way or that way. To have me care for you, you have to be a person who's in front of me, period. That's what we want in the church, don't we? That's what we want. We want to build a counterculture here. One thing that makes church membership so very precious is that you don't have to qualify by meeting a certain income standard or a certain social acceptability standard. You don't have to be this attractive or that compelling. You just have to be a sinner in need of mercy who confesses Christ as Savior and Lord. 
What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, just like there's a lot of confusion about economics and socialism and Marxism and wealth and redistribution, there is also a whole lot of misunderstanding about love. What does it mean to love your neighbor? In our culture, you don't have to look far to find love grossly misunderstood. All sorts of diabolical, um, hell-welcoming sexual deviancy is excused and even promoted under the terrible tautology, love is love. Love is what God says it is. Love is love because God is God. And love carries its nature and its ethical reality out of the reality of God and his holiness. So what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And what about those last two words, as yourself, as yourself? What does that mean? Is it some sort of Freudian self-esteem boosting thing? Don't think so. What is it? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? As I wrestled with this, one sentence out of this commentary by Alec Mathieu really nailed it for me. How do we love ourselves? Never it is hoped with an emotional thrill, (laughs) rarely as a matter of fact, with such a sense of satisfaction at all but always with a concern and care and attention. Mathieu says, how do we love ourselves? Never it is hoped with a sense of emotional thrill. Most of the time that we love ourselves, it isn't even with a sense of satisfaction about ourselves, but it is always a simple concern and care and attention. And I want to unpack this because we're laboring under this large, important matter that everything in our culture today is conspiring to define love based on your feelings or to define love based on passing standards of emotion and acceptability. But scriptural love is defined as a God-honoring action and attitude of self-sacrifice on behalf of the ones that we love. This is why (laughs) Mathieu says, We don't love ourselves with an emotional thrill or even with a sense of satisfaction. That is, the Bible is not here indicating that you should have a crush on yourself. It ain't that kind of love. Oh, I just love me. I'm the only me that there ever has been. I deserve a chocolate donut today. A box of them, not the little ones either. He says, we don't, have a crush. we don't have a crush on ourselves. You don't love your, right? You don't love yourself because right now you are convinced that you actually are the greatest, most attractive, most wise, most compelling person in the universe. And yet you still love yourself. Now we got to un- unravel here. Well, then what does it really mean to love ourselves? You can love yourself and be disappointed with yourself. You can love yourself and disapprove of yourself. You can love yourself and not find yourself attractive. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your your, your neighbor doesn't have to appear attractive to you or pleasing to you. You just love your neighbor. 
illustration. I dare say, I dare say that a few of you woke up this morning, looked at yourself in the mirror, and said, yikes. It is Halloween up in here. Like, what? This happened. Well, you, you didn't wake up this morning and just smudge the mirror kissing yourself because you find yourself so attractive. You woke up this morning and you had a problem with the way you were unattractive. But you loved yourself by flossing that taco out of your teeth and combing that hair or shining that bald spot whatever, or powdering it down, whatever you do. When, you're, when you were driving this week and you made a wrong turn and you, you muttered to yourself, ah, oh, I'm such an idiot. After you muttered that, you did not hit the gas and drive your car off of a cliff because you're so angry at yourself that you are destroying yourself. Even though you said, oh, I'm such an idiot, I made that wrong turn, you carefully executed the maneuver to get yourself back on the road. You don't have to be happy with yourself or find yourself attractive to love, love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. I, I, I was in a meeting not long ago that I was supposed to be leading, and I did a poor job leading the meeting. So I walk out of here for lunch. I'm like, I'm such an idiot. I should have, you know, you, it, you always come up with your best leadership principles after the meeting's over. I'm like, I should have done this, 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 and that. Yet I got in the car, and when I drove myself to lunch, I bought myself what I wanted for lunch. I didn't make myself choke down sandpaper for lunch, even though I was upset with myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The love we owe our neighbor is not a love that finds them attractive or compelling or the best or emotionally stirring or satisfying or personally gratifying. The love that we owe our neighbor is like the care and concern that we have for ourselves. That's what this is saying. It's not saying you're not a good Christian if you don't well up with emotion every time you see pictures of needy people. It's not talking about emotion. It's talking about an attitude and a posture and an action. Love in personal relationships means I will speak and act. Love in personal relationships means I will speak and act toward you in the way that is for your greatest good right now and in the future. I will speak and act toward you in the way that is for your greatest good now and in the future. Whatever you do or say to me, I will continually and carefully speak and act toward you in ways that are for your greatest good now and in the future. I do acts of kindness and generosity, not because those things make me feel emotionally happy or I get so warm and fuzzy when they're rightly responded to, but I do those things because God is love and God says to love as he is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Third question, what does this say about the Bible and law? Verses 9 and 10, the, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all. I'm just going to deal with this in two or three sentences today because I would like to, Lord willing, next week trace this whole question of are we under the law or not? What about the Old Testament? What about the New Testament? Take a whole 
week to understand that together. So just to summarize this in a couple of sentences today, verses 9, especially verse 10, are saying if you carefully follow God's commands about murder and adultery, and yet you discriminate against the poor or you discriminate against certain people because of what they look like, you are just as guilty before God as if you committed adultery or murder. God's commands. The aggressive argument here is that God's law is not a text that you can edit as you go. It is one unified whole that rolls out from the throne of the king of kings. And we don't have the right to alter it at all. It's the royal law. And we don't edit it. More on that next week. Let's get to the fourth and final question. What does this text say about judgment and mercy and are believers headed for judgment or not? That's a very good question. Verses 12 and 13, speaking to believers, says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does this say about mercy and judgment? When is the last time that you woke up and you just knew today I'm going to face a judgment? Maybe it's because you had a traffic ticket and you had to go to court. Off the top of my head, the last time I remember feeling that way, because it's not for traffic court, is it was years ago now when I was completing my doctorate. And the morning that I knew this day, I have to appear before the PhD professors that are going to sign off on my doctrine. They can ask me anything they want about anything in the world. And then they're going to say pass or fail. I remember quaking as a 21-year-old when I appeared before my ordination council, you know, at Grace Community with... Pastor MacArthur, my dad was on the board at that time, and all these other, they they can examine me about anything and decide, do I get to be a pastor or not? Jose Torres is actually in process of ordination with our elder board right now. So pray that he will quake in his boots (laughs) and that we will show him no mercy. Uh, The statement in verse 12 is that we're to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The grammar notes a certain future event. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. That's a certain future that are to be judged under the law of liberty. The grammar denotes a future event that is certain to happen. Matthew 25 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him he will gather all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. If I could geek out about the grammar in this text for just a half a minute, it is significant. Look at verse 12 again. So speak and so act. Those are present progressive verbs, which means keep speaking and keep acting right now. 
So speak and so act, present progressive tense. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The present progressive is in the first half of the verse. The certain future is in the second half of the verse. I love this because it proves this. Christians live with present continuous activity that is motivated by our certainty about the future. Christians live with present continual activity and attitude that is predicated on and motivated by our certainty about the future. We could paraphrase the, ver the verbiage this way. Every day, keep on speaking and keep on acting the right way because you are so certain that the final day is coming soon when all of your speaking and acting will be evaluated. Christian, the Christian ethic is here written in bold lines and the Christian ethic is always eschatological. It always has a view toward that day. It's never merely what is my neighbor, what's going on right now. It's always with a view toward that day. We believe in certain future events and our belief about those certain future events determines our conduct today. Therefore, the Christian ethic is never situational or existential in the sense that it's untied to a greater eschatological reality. We don't live by our feelings. We don't live by the shifting media manipulation that tells us to do this or not to do this. Whenever anybody talks about being on the wrong side of history, 99 to 100% of the time, they have no idea what they're talking about unless they're talking about the eschaton. We don't live by any of that. We live based on the certainty that we confess in the oldest creed that the church has. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Our ethics today find their definitive reality in the coming of that day. The explanation of verses 12 and 13 is necessary because, well, is the Christian going to be judged or not? People who don't get the gospel think that we will be judged at the pearly gates. People who don't get the gospel believe that the pearly gates will be like the waiting room at the hospital and the door will open and an angel will come out and say, so-and-so, it's your time for your appointment. And they'll sort of x-ray your life and add up the good things you've done and the bad things you've done. That's to get the gospel wrong. Gospel grace says that we're saved by the deeds of another. We're saved by grace through faith in the righteousness of Jesus alone. So in this context, when it says that, that we need to show mercy in light of the coming judgment, James is inviting Christians to show active mercy, not in the sense that if we show active mercy, we will earn our salvation. 
Salvation is of mercy. Mercy is unearned. The, the thing falls apart based on the very terms. It is not that we show mercy and merit salvation. It is that if we show mercy, this lines us up in showing the reality that we have received God's mercy. Showing mercy doesn't make us worthy to get into heaven. If we could make ourselves worthy to get into heaven, we wouldn't need mercy in the first place and salvation wouldn't be by grace. So what does this mean? Doesn't the Bible say that if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation? And that if we're in Christ, we've been delivered from judgment and death? Yes, the Bible says both of those things. The Bible says that for those who are in Christ, there will be no condemnation. But if you read it carefully, the Bible does not say that for some certain persons, there will be no judgment. The Bible says that there will be a judgment unto condemnation for those who are not in Christ. And the Bible says there will be a judgment, not unto condemnation, but there will be a judgment unto reward for those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is done. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The believer's condemnation is impossible. The believer's ultimate rejection is impossible. But at the judgment seat of Christ, the believer's reward is on the line. 1 Corinthians 3 is the, the biggest explanation of this that we have probably in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 13 say, wood, hay, and stubbles, gold, silver, and precious stones. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, or wood, hay, and straw. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, each person's work will become manifest, for that day will disclose it. It will be revealed as with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has done on that foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. The believer will not be rejected. No condemnation. But some of the believer's works will be rejected and some will be accepted. We want to so fulfill, we want to really fulfill the law of liberty so that our works are shown to be grounded in the mercy and grace of Jesus and the gospel so they lead to reward. And then the text ends in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then this curious sentence of only four words in the English. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is ending the paragraph. And it's like, he's like a filmmaker. And you watch this film and the character arc and the narrative arc is all clear and everything's been resolved. But the filmmaker places in the last 40 seconds of the last scene some little curious clue to make you leave the theater and wonder. I wonder what he's going to put in the next movie. It's all, it's all wrapped up. And then there's this last little zinger. 
James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, which is a very negative statement. And it's almost as if, for me, I'm preaching a sermon and I've been kind of hard on you and I feel like I can't leave on a negative note. James says, I'm not gonna end by saying you've shown no mercy, you'll get no mercy. I wanna put one more zinger in there. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. It is a curious anomaly in the passage and there is no further explanation of it in the preceding or succeeding context. It's a curiosity. But what else can it be about than the cross of Jesus Christ? Because Christianity distinguishes itself by tying justice and mercy together at the cross. And in this strange way, justice is fully and actually vindicated, and yet mercy triumphs, not by ignoring just, justice, not by winking at justice, but justice is vindicated on the back of the Lamb of God, and yet mercy triumphs. At the cross, the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to deliver the people of God from the wrath of God by satisfying the just wrath of God in the crucifixion of the Son of God as he bore all of the sins of the people of God so that the people of God would no longer receive the wrath of God but would receive the mercy of God. The cross is the centerpiece not only of this church but of the history of the universe. Where else do mercy and judgment meet? At the end of the day, when every soul is stripped naked before God, there is nothing we fear more than being condemned. And at the end of the day, there is nothing that every soul naked before God craves for than acceptance and mercy and love and belonging. And here at that old rugged cross, all of the streams of prophetic scripture about the holiness of God and blood and wrath and vindication and all of the streams of prophecy about making a bride for his son and about beautifying an ugly people and about cleansing a polluted people, they are fulfilled when the sinless son of God bears the sins of the people of God. There is no place that the judgment of God was more awful than at Golgotha. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, for the Son of God to utter that. It's as, if the, it's as if the fabric of the universe was rent at that cry of dereliction. And yet there is no place where the awesome wonder of God's mercy is more on display for the weakest the poorest, the one who can't even look up to heaven. Say, I don't, I don't deserve to look up, God, but would you please have mercy on me? And God in Christ says yes.
to you, to you. Let's pray. Lord, it's by your mercy alone that we bow before you. We claim no righteousness of our own. We claim no birthright of our own. Not of the will of flesh. Not of the good doing of humanity. But by your sovereign mercy, we call out to you for salvation and we rejoice that in Christ you have met our need. And so now we ask that through worship, through the understanding of your word, through the very presence of your Holy Spirit, we would really fulfill the perfect law, the law of liberty. Let us find your mercy. Let us be filled with your mercy so that many will see the wonderful salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.